Our first sponsor today is Navy Hair Care. I have been working with Navy Hair Care since they launched back in 2018. At that time, I was about a year postpartum with our third child, and my hair was experiencing some trouble after some significant postpartum hair loss. Navy really helped to strengthen my hair, and I noticed a big difference about one to two months after using it regularly. With biotin, vitamins, and rosemary oil, this shampoo and conditioner combo has been part of my daily routine for years now. I also use the charcoal mask every one to two weeks to help revitalize my hair. It helps to dry out toxins, heavy metals, and impurities, which we have plenty of since we have well water. This mask will leave your hair feeling incredibly soft and lightweight. You can use the code Lindsay, L-Y-N-Z-Y, for 30% off your order, and I will leave the links to the products I mentioned within the show notes. Hello, everyone. Today, I will be chatting with Dr. Nicole Aronson. Dr. Aronson is a board-certified physician in both otolaryngology and pediatric otolaryngology. She cares for children in the clinic, OR, and hospital setting. She works for Nemours Hospital for Children at their main hospital in Wilmington, Delaware, and their ambulatory surgery center in Deptford, New Jersey. She also has a YouTube channel, which is linked in the show notes, that has pediatric ENT content designed for parents, as well as a new children's book that was just released. In today's episode, we will talk about ear infections, why children are prone to them, how to prevent them, when to treat and when to watch and wait, as well as how to equalize pressure while on flights. Let's dive in. Just a little disclaimer before we start this episode, this podcast does not provide medical advice. The information on this podcast is for informational purposes only. No material on this site is intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hello, everyone. So today we have Dr. Nicole Aronson. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. So today we will be talking all about ear infections. We'll be talking about otitis media and otitis externa, and then some questions that kind of go along with that. So why don't we start with, I think, one of the most common questions you typically hear is, like, why are kids getting these infections so much more than adults do, right? Like I've never had an ear infection. I don't even know if I had one when I was a kid, but I certainly don't hear about adults getting them as frequently. And I don't see it in our adult emergency department very much either. So if you could start with that, that would be great. Yeah. So I think there's a few reasons kids get them more. One is just their heads are less grown up and less developed. So your middle ear, which is the space behind your eardrum, connects via your eustachian tube to kind of to the back of the nose, top of the throat space. And that's what kind of keeps the space behind the eardrum full of air and equal to the pressure outside. And for kids, their eustachian tubes are are less developed. They are more horizontal and less vertical in orientation. And so gravity doesn't really help drain quite as much. They're smaller, they're not as stiff. And so kids are just more prone to stasis of fluid kind of in this space behind the middle ear. That and their immune systems are less developed. They haven't developed all their good B cells and other immune responses that adults have, and they're getting exposed to a lot of things for the first time. And then there are a lot of places and they do a lot of things that kind of set them up for ear infections, like hanging out in daycare, using pacifiers, putting their fingers in their mouths, crawling on the floor, like doing all those things that 
you know, help you build your immunity in the first years of life, but before they get there, leave them as a setup for these ear infections. Oh, so you mentioned pacifiers. How does that work out? So population level data suggests that pacifiers, using a bottle, especially if you're lying down, having smoke exposure in the home and daycare are all associated with more frequent ear infections. So in any kid, you can have a kid who has all the risk factors, never gets an ear infection, has none, gets a ton of ear infections. So it doesn't work in a kid by kid basis, but on a population level, these are the things that seem like they correlate. Interesting. All right. So let's talk about the difference between what a middle ear infection and what an outer ear infection is first. Yeah. So a middle ear infection is the ear infection in that space behind the eardrum. It tends to go with fever. It's really painful. It's worse when the kid lies down and tries to go to sleep at night. You don't necessarily see drainage or anything like that unless it progresses to the point that the eardrum ruptures. And it's what I think most people are usually talking about when they say an ear infection. The otitis externa, the outer ear infection, is what I think most people call swimmer's ear. And it's a lot of times associated with water exposure. Touching the ear itself can be like excruciating, out of proportion, painful. The ear canal can look really swollen and there can be either a lot of gunk looking like it's in the ear canal or actual drainage coming out of it. Perfect. And then can you explain, I think this is where things can get a little bit confusing, especially for parents that bring their kids in, bacterial versus viral. When are we treating this? When are we just kind of sitting on it and watching it develop or go away? And what are the reasons for that? Yeah. So I I think it's really hard to tell when you first look at a kid's ear if it's bacterial or viral. And I think an extra confuser can be that there can be kind of sterile middle ear fluid sitting there that isn't either. When they show up and they have the symptoms, pain, discomfort, they have that kind of bulging looking eardrum, the fluid looks less clear and maybe more like pus behind it. A lot of them are viral. And so the the recommendation is usually to start with something like watchful waiting and give it kind of that 48 to 72 hour time frame because about 80% are going to resolve on their own in three days. The kids who, you know, have other things going on, they have extremely high fever, they're not getting better after 48 to 72 hours, they've had a history of having febrile seizures with fever or other things that mean we have to be more aggressive. I think we jump in a little sooner, but I think watchful waiting for this first period is is very reasonable for the vast majority of kids. Yes. And so so two things here. If you can just briefly mention why it's important to, if you're not in one of those kids that we are worried that this might be bacterial for the reasons that you mentioned, why waiting on antibiotics is a better idea than just always just prescribing antibiotics, regardless if we think it's bacterial or viral or not, because I think that's always important to address. And then also, I just wanted to note that you said 80% will resolve. That's a substantial amount of kids, right, that will resolve within just a few days. And I just, case in point, want to tell everyone that with four kids, I think I've treated, well, not me personally, but their pediatrician has treated an ear infection in all four of my kids. I think I can count it on one hand right? So, and again, that's not going to be every kid. Like you said, some kids are very prone to ear infections and have multiple per year. But my kids, four of them, I mean, we've treated an ear infection less than five times in all four of them. And so that just goes to show you, but 
and and they've had ear pain with many different viral infections, right? We just kind of sit and wait and and make sure it kind of resolves and make sure they don't get febrile and all of those things that you mentioned. But yeah, if you don't mind addressing the antibiotic part, that would be perfect. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's kind of two pieces to it. One is like any medical intervention, antibiotics aren't without side effects. There are definitely kids who get a lot of belly upset. There are kids who get really nauseated. So there are kids who just don't feel well from them. And then there's also the idea of antibiotic resistance that we don't want to be putting kids on as many antibiotics as possible. And then when they really need them for a serious bacterial infection down the road, they've kind of selected out the more resistant pathogens because they've killed off all the ones that were susceptible and now they have these more resistant pathogens affecting them. So I think if you can, if you don't need them, if we can watch and they're going to get better in a few days, and especially if they have an ongoing obvious viral cold or something like that, that's, I think, the best first line. Right. So if you had some, a a kid that came to you and, you know, they had, let's say it's 24 hours of just an earache, ear pain, but they weren't febrile yet. Is that something that you would treat just because they had no other viral symptoms like a cough, a runny nose, headache, like those types of things? Would you be more prone to treat that or would you still wait? I mean, I would, I would probably in a kid that's otherwise looking and doing well, and it's been 24 hours, unless, you know, they, they looked like their eardrum looked you know, so bad or things looked, you know, extremely inflamed. I I would probably try to watch and wait full disclosure. Rarely do I see the kids at that moment. They're usually at the pediatrician. I'm usually the girl once they've had so many or they have fluid that's not clearing that sees them. But I mean, I, I think even in a kid who's not having a lot of other viral symptoms, I think, you know, if it's only been a day, giving it, giving it a minute Mm -hmm. is not an unreasonable thing. Mm -hmm. Right. This podcast is brought to you by AG1. AG1 is a daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. I started adding AG1 into my routine back in early spring and have noticed quite a difference. Overall, I wanted better gut health and as a bonus to boost my energy levels. I was consistent for about three months and then I took a three-week break and noticed that I was tired and overall not feeling my best. I introduced AG1 back into my daily routine and within a few days was feeling more myself. The only thing I changed was AG1, so I'm assuming this played a positive role. I drink AG1 in the morning with a scoop of protein right after working out in the early morning. Makes me feel ready to take on my day by giving my body the nutrition it craves. Overall, I have felt more mental clarity, increased energy levels, and positive differences in gut health. As a mom, AG1 is a quick and easy way to get science-driven formulation of vitamins, probiotics, and whole food source nutrients on a daily basis. As you all know, taking care of you first is the best way to take care of your kids. And AG1 is one of the ways I take care of myself every day. AG1 has a slight tropical flavor and tastes great if you want to add it to your smoothies. But for me, I like it just mixed with ice cold water and vanilla protein. AG1 has the NSF certification. This certification was created for professional athletes and is the gold standard for clean ingredient nutrition. The certification process is exhaustive and involves testing and verification of each ingredient in every finished batch of AG1. If you want to check out the full ingredient list, you can head over to their website for more details. Perhaps my favorite part about AG1 is how they evolve with science. 
They cross-reference decades of established research with new clinical studies and biotechnology to bring you the best formulation possible. They have already made 52 iterations of AG1 to this day and will always strive to be better. For all the moms out there, you know how busy we can be. So if you're looking for self-care that's quick and easy, try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash Lindsay. That's L-Y-N-Z-Y. That's drinkag1.com slash Lindsay. L-Y-N-Z-Y. Check it out. All right, before we talk about what do you do if your child starts to get frequent ear infections, I would love to hear your thoughts on treatment options with things like xylitol, probiotics, herbs, homeopathy, alcohol, and what the research says about these different items as far as treatment or maybe prevention or maybe decreasing pain. I have heard so many different things that parents have used either like throughout history many years ago or even now. The other day I was just listening to a parent talk about how one of their friends was using alcohol in their child's ear and just as the like primary treatment option. So I would love to hear what you have to say about what does the science and research say about some of these different things and what do you think? Yeah, no. So the alcohol, where I think the alcohol comes in is helping the water that gets in there when you've been swimming evaporate better. So it's not necessarily an ear infection treatment. And I've definitely told people they can use a little bit of diluted rubbing alcohol in their ears too, if they their kids are prone to swimmer's ear and they want to do that after swimming. When it comes to the middle ear infections, I was looking up and kind of checking up the facts. Xylitol, I think, is and, and Echinacea have sort of the best data in terms of randomized controlled trials. And Echinacea probably is protective against upper respiratory tract infections and the associated ear infections that go with them. Xylitol is more equivocal in the studies. And some of the issues with it is it's generally five times a day dosing, which is sort of hard to do. And the gum and the lozenges versions are better effective than the syrup version, but you can't give gum or lozenges to kids under two. And those are kind of the majority of your ear infection kids. So they're stuck with the syrup, which is probably less effective. Probiotics, there's probably a role. There's a lot of conflicting studies out there, but it looks like the best studies, which are kind of still in the works, are the ones that look at like actually achieving colonization from the probiotic. And so a lot of the older studies haven't really looked to see, well, if you achieve colonization, does that make it actually beneficial? And so that's sort sort of still in the works. Looking at things like the homeopathic drops and things like that, it seemed like from the studies that there is some possible reduction in symptom duration and decrease of pain, but the studies were overall, like they couldn't make a formal recommendation from it, but it seemed like that was the trend was toward a little less pain. So they probably are not harmful and maybe helpful in that sense. And then things like Vayak medicine, Chinese, Japanese, traditional medicine and aromatherapies, there's just not a lot of data on any of them. There may be benefit to some, but there's really no data. And for, I know chiropractic release is also often touted. There are a few studies on that, which don't necessarily 
show a ton of benefit and there is some significant risk, especially in immature skeletons and manipulating necks rapidly. And so that's probably not a great choice, but it looks like the best data right now for prevention probably comes under echinacea. Okay, excellent. And then you mentioned pain briefly. Now, obviously, you can use Tylenol or Motrin. Have you seen that kids do better with one or the other as far as pain relief? And is there anything else you recommend? So I I think it's pretty similar. I think, honestly, more people do Motrin, in my experience, than Tylenol. When I looked at the studies on it, pain relief seems to be pretty much the same between the two. Motrin tends to last a little longer, so you don't have to dose it as much. And Motrin seems to be a little more effective for the fever part. So that may be the better choice. I mean, I think other thing is just, you know, warm compresses. I think, you know, when they're trying to sleep, trying to keep them a little elevated because that lying flat can be extra uncomfortable. But, uh, Tylenol and Motrin tend to be the mainstay. Perfect. All right. So say you have a parent, they were referred to you because their child's having frequent ear infections. What are we talking about as far as frequency? Um, like when are you seeing these kids? How many ear infections have they had and in what period of time? So, so our academy guidelines usually suggest three ear infections in six months and four in a year is when we start thinking about ear tubes. The caveat is when we examine them, ideally, we still see middle ear fluid presence. So there is some seasonality to how I think about these kids. If I have a kid coming into my office in March and they've had three in the past six months, but now it's been you know, a month since they've had one and their ears look pretty good, I tend to say, let's see how we do. Like summer's coming. Summer's going to be our better season. Let's, you know, if we're going to continue, yeah, we're going to end up with ear tubes. But if we're going to be good all summer, well, next fall, winter will be a year older. Let's see how it goes. If we're in December, we've been getting them every three weeks and we've got, you know, months of winter to go when I see a kid whose ears have fluid in them, I'm probably going to say, okay. Mm-hmm. Let's let's move along it's to time. ear tubes. Yeah. Now, are there any other treatment options besides the ear tubes? And then talk a little bit about the tubes. When do they be when are they removed? Can kids swim? How much time needs to clear before they swim? And does this affect how they hear at all? So I wish there were other options other than just a surgery. But like if we're that kid who we've been on all these antibiotics and we just keep getting them, I don't have a lot of other options. Sometimes depending on the age of the kid, things like adenoids kind of come into play and we might be thinking about is that sort of part of this problem in terms of the tubes themselves. They tend to last about six to 18 months in the eardrums. Most of the time they're going to fall out on their own. If they don't manage to fall out in about three years or so, that's when I start to think about taking them out for being in too long. They are definitely allowed to swim. There were lots of recommendations for earplugs back in the day. They, As they studied it, it did not help prevent ear infections. It just kind of made people fight with their parents. And so we don't recommend routine water prophylaxis. I have some kids who don't like water in their ears and want to wear earplugs. And of course, they're welcome to, but most kids do not. And I usually say they can swim kind of as soon as they feel well enough after the tubes, which is generally the next day if they want to. Oh, you asked me about hearing. So hearing, if it's a kid who had a lot of middle ear fluid that was hanging out there, 
because when we put the tubes in, that fluid gets removed. They generally can hear better after the tubes. For the kids who had no fluid, they probably hear the same. Mm-hmm. Now, does the treatment for otitis media differ from otitis externa at all? It does. So otitis externa is topical treatment. Oral antibiotics are not going to get the job done. I always say it's a combination of oral toilet, A-U-R-A-L, so like ear cleaning and topical medications. And so if I have a kid with a really bad otitis externa, I may say to them, okay, I'm going to clean out your ear. You're going to hate it. And we may have to do it again. But what we're trying to do is get some of this debris out so the drops can get in and treat it and get the swelling down. Sometimes if it's really bad, we have to put what's called a wick. It's it's sort of like an absorbent material in the ear just to help the drops get in and like let that canal swelling go down. But those Otic drops that are great for swimmer's ear, if you have a kid with an intact eardrum and a middle ear infection, aren't getting to the place where they need to be. And that's why the drops work great when you have an ear tube in or if you have a hole in your eardrum, but they are not effective if you have an intact eardrum. Right. Is there anything that parents can be doing with their kids to help prevent if they are those kids that are kind of prone to these frequent infections? I mean, I think, you know, trying to get rid of the bottle and the pacifier, trying to encourage good hand hygiene, which is hard in these little ones. I think, I think if there's smoke exposure in the house, getting rid of that. I I once had a mom tell me that the pediatrician told her she should not have her kid in daycare and be a stay-at-home mom. I I don't think a lot of moms could do that. Oh, or, wow. That's a, I know. I was, I was wow, so was taken that. aback, right? I, I mean, right. The daycare, I feel like, is, is sort of a necessary thing for a lot of families. And so I think that's not modifiable. But I think some of the, the pacifier bottle stuff, although it can be a little bit of a rough road to get rid of it, I think that's a modifiable thing. But I mean, I think a lot of it, unfortunately is sort of related to the kids growing up and getting through that phase. And there's, there's not a ton the parents can do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on the cleaning of the ears? I, I remember doing this as a kid all the time, but I don't, I don't really do it much anymore, but cleaning your ear canal with Q tips. I like, I did it as a kid all the time. I just felt like it was like part of the, like, I don't know, like the after shower routine, you clean out your ears. Right. And I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't do that. And I don't do that with my kids. But so why why don't why don't you like so it? So the ears are meant to be self-cleaning. They're meant to like having a little bit of wax there is a good thing. It keeps the skin healthy. It keeps that microbiome of the outer ear canal normal. And so the ear canal is supposed to gradually push the wax out the opening. So everything kind of like at the opening of the ear or right on the outside, of course, clean that. Totally fair game. But when you go down with a Q-tip, A you're pushing the wax down farther. Sometimes you can push it all the way against your eardrum, which is then you feel blocked and it's incredibly uncomfortable, or you can injure the eardrum. And then your ear canal is basically just skin on bone for good parts of it. And so it's really easy to kind of scuff up that skin or make a little hematoma or a scratch. And so, I mean, I I think some of, as long as you know, someone has an intact eardrum, things like wax drops or hydrogen peroxide, if you feel plugged up with wax is fine, but the Q-tips are always a bad idea. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. And then the last question I wanted to ask you was, 
Do you have any specific suggestions on how to relieve pressure while flying? And if you could kind of separate that into what you would do for kids and then what you would do for yourself. Yes. So for kids, I mean, I think flying with an active ear infection is kind of a a nightmare. I think Tylenol Motrin kind of before you get in the air, having them kind of keep chewing on something and also doing a little afro-nasal decongestant up the nose just to optimize as much as you can is the best thing. If they don't have an active ear infection, it's still kind of the same thing as probably minus the Tylenol. I don't, Afrin is not something that should be used long-term by any means, but like just before a flight, I think is a totally reasonable time. For adults, it's sort of similar. I think it depends how bad your ears are. So I am a gum chewer on flights and that is enough to get me through. I also will do the auto insufflate where you basically hold your nose and blow out gently and kind of open those eustachian tubes. So I will do that when flying. One of my partners in our practice, she's got terrible ears though. She tends to spray herself with Afrin before and she tends to take an an oral decongestant as well, just to kind of optimize herself for flying because she gets a lot of that prolonged pressure afterward. So it, it sort of depends how bad it is, but it's it's usually decongesting as much as you can. Yeah, it's so weird. I mean, so like personally, I'm curious about this question because I have never had any issues flying, like never. I mean, yeah, I would chew a piece of gum and, and be fine. And it's really weird. The like last five years or so, I and it's not every flight. I wonder if it's just an altitude thing and how fast the plane comes down. But I would say the majority of the time, at least one of my ears, I mean, the pain is just, it is like out of control. (laughs) Like by the time I get to the ground, I'm like in tears and then I have pain for like three days afterwards. And I'm like, what is this? Like, does your body like, or I mean, I guess, I guess maybe every time I went, I was just congested. Maybe (laughs) I don't feel like I was though. Every, every, every time this happened, it wasn't like I was sick or been sick recently. I I felt fine overall, but it's like, I can't tolerate it as much as I get older. Yeah. I mean, it could be, I mean, I think there could be some difference in how fast different planes go up and down and that probably plays in. I think they're also could be if you have any little allergy or congestion that can play in. And it could just be like, you know, you you were doing a better job equalizing. You were chewing up more on one than the other. And it, just the combination of then the plane ascended or descended faster. Because I definitely, it was the opposite of you. I As a kid, hated to fly because my ears are always terrible. And now that I'm grown, I feel like they're kind of outgrown some of that. But yeah, no, it's interesting that it's kind of hit it's you so weird. later on. It's like bizarre. Yeah. So I was very curious about that. All right. Is there anything that you think we might have missed or not touched on when it comes to kids and ear infections? The only other thing that I wanted to mention was just that there's ear infections and there is ear fluid. And they're not necessarily the same, but they probably both deserve a little attention. Kids with chronic fluid, you worry, does it muffle their hearing? And you especially worry for the kids who already have reasons to struggle. They have visual impairment, they have cognitive impairment, they have autism, they have speech delay, they have other stuff going on that you're especially worried. And so if, you know, 
your doctor's like, oh no, it's never an ear infection. They just have fluid all the time. Like that's, that's a reason to think about looking in it into the ears a little more as well versus just the, the straight infections. Right. Right. Okay. All right. So I have two questions for you that don't pertain to the topic today. The first question is if you could give one piece of advice to moms, what would it be? So one piece of advice to moms is when you are going to the doctor's appointment, think about ahead of time what you want to get out of it and what information you might need to bring that helps that happen. And so I I think, you know, just having things written down, I think kids are unpredictable in the doctor's office, right? And some are going to sit like little angels and some are going to be running around and you're going to be distracted trying to wrangle them. So having some notes of like, these were my concerns. These are the questions I want answered. Or if you want, you know, a a co-parent or a grandma or grandpa or whoever, a friend, whoever is like your backup person, tell them when the appointment is and say to the doctor, do you mind if I put dad on speakerphone? Do you mind if I put grandpa on speakerphone? Just to have an extra set of ears to help you absorb. And I think that's a great thing for parents that technology allows. And the best time to do it, honestly, is is pretty much right up front because then they can add to the history and they can hear everything that is said. And it always makes, I think, the doc way happier if you do it at the beginning than if you do it right as the visit is wrapping up and say, can we repeat this we whole thing? We have a million questions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, but I, I definitely think that is helpful because there's definitely a lot going on in an mm-hmm. appointment where you have to also be watching your child at yes. the same time. Yes, absolutely. All right. And then the last question is, if you could make one meal that's relatively quick and easy, but still yummy, what would it be? Oh, one meal. Oh, I'm I'm like the worst cook. Okay. Um, Hey, listen, some people have told me like I order a pizza, so you can really say anything. (laughs) So I, I would honestly, I would probably make some kind of a salad. My salad secret ingredient is usually mandarin orange slices. So I'd probably make a salad with mandarin orange slices because it's pretty quick to throw together and it's fresh and filling and tasty. Yes. Love it. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Aronson, for taking time out of your busy day to chat with us about this important topic. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. All resources mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes on lindsayandco.com. To continue these important conversations, head over to Motherhood Meets Medicine on Instagram. Let me know what you learned from this episode and who you would love to hear from next. I always love getting feedback from you. If you're finding value in this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. This will help us to reach even more women from around the world. I'll catch you next week. Until then, don't forget to find some time to unplug, unwind, and have a little fun. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.